0: One, two, three. Testing. One, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon. On the air. Broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, A Spirited Debate, or The Ghost of Podcast Past. In the comments section to our last episode, a listener named Dale gave some friendly pushback. The purpose of tonight's episode is to respond to Dale's criticisms and explore the issues raised in the last episode more in depth. The last episode was called The Amazing, Contradicting Joseph Smith. In that episode, I compared religion with science. The religious view versus the scientific view, and suggested that the scientific view is willing to completely overturn its prior suppositions and belief systems when confronted with new information, whereas religion is not willing to do so. I propose that the scientific view is the one that is more likely to lead to discovery of new truth whereas the religious view is less likely to lead to the discovery of new truth. I set forth seven examples of places where Joseph Smith contradicted himself during his short prophetic ministry of 15 years. Joseph Smith seemed to have no problem contradicting himself. In fact, he was aware that he was contradicting himself and it appears that Joseph Smith was completely willing to contradict himself on doctrinal matters in order to incorporate new information, new inspiration and new revelation even when he was contradicting doctrines that had been set forth in Scripture that Joseph Smith himself had given. The seven examples I gave of Joseph Smith contradicting himself were number one the statement in the Doctrine and Covenants that the Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the Gospel This in spite of the fact that Joseph Smith added many other elements of the Gospel after the Book of Mormon came off the press, and elements of the Gospel which are nowhere found in the Book of Mormon. In fact, some elements which contradict what is contained in the Book of Mormon. Example number two had to do with the nature of God, how the Book of Mormon goes from a Trinitarian concept of God in 1829 to 1835 with the lectures on faith, specifically lecture number five, which says the Godhead consists of two beings, God the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit not being a personage at all, but rather the mind that is shared between the Father and the Son. Additionally, the lecture on faith in 1835 says that God the Father does not have a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, but is a personage of spirit. I then compared that with section 130 given in 1843, in which the Holy Ghost has now been promoted to being a personage of spirit, and the Father Now having obtained a body of flesh and bones, no longer being a personage of spirit as he was eight years earlier, in the lectures on faith. Example number three had to do with the issue of salvation for those who don't hear the gospel. Briefly put, it went from the Book of Mormon's teachings in 1829 that those who die without a chance to hear the gospel are saved through the merits and the atonement of Jesus Christ, and traced the development of that belief through section 76 given in 1832, then to section 137 given in 1836, and up to the institution of ordinance work for the dead beginning in 1840, which changed the entire playing field and contradicted everything that was given earlier, saying that now ordinance work must be performed for those who are dead and they must accept that ordinance work in the spirit world in order to be saved in the celestial kingdom. Example 4 had to do with the concept that God is eternal or that God is from everlasting to everlasting, as stated in the Book of Mormon. This was contradicted by Joseph Smith in the King Follett Discourse, in which he specifically says, we have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea. Contradiction number five had to do with the book of Abraham, where God says that he is more intelligent than all the other intelligences that exist. That was contradicted by Joseph Smith in his last recorded sermon, the Sermon at the Grove, in which he says, no, there are intelligences above God the Father. And in fact, those intelligences are God's themselves. Example number six, had to do with the teaching in Doctrine and Covenants section 76 that the Celestial Kingdom is the highest of the kingdoms. This is contradicted by section 131, given in 1843, in which it is taught that there are actually higher orders of kingdoms than the Celestial kingdom. And finally, Contradiction 7 had to do with the age-old contradiction on the subject of polygamy between Jacob Chapter 2 and the Book of Mormon, which condemns polygamy, versus Section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where polygamy is not only justified, but commanded of God. Having pointed out those contradictions, I suggest that apologists will try and explain away those contradictions so they are not really contradictions, because they are looking at things from a religious point of view, which holds as its main tenet that doctrine must always remain the same. It can never be contradicted. Critics will look at the same information from the same point of view and condemn Joseph Smith as a false prophet because he contradicted himself. What I suggest in the podcast, however, is that if we look at Joseph Smith from a scientific point of view and one that is more calculated and better able to obtain truth and make room for new knowledge, then Joseph Smith may indeed have been a prophet, at least if a prophet is defined as one who is a seeker of truth, I closed off the podcast by suggesting that we could possibly learn lessons from the way Joseph Smith approached his quest for truth, not being afraid to contradict himself on things he had said earlier, and even when those things that he said earlier were doctrinal pronouncements that were enshrined in Scripture. I closed out by proposing that modern LDS church leadership could learn from the example of Joseph Smith, that they were not hog-tied to the past that they did not have to continue to promote teachings just because that's the way it had always been done, but that in following Joseph Smith's example, they were free to completely overturn and contradict any prior authoritative or doctrinal scriptural statement when confronted with new information, inspiration, and revelation. And indeed, that closing part of the podcast seems to have generated the most controversy, and it is that part of the podcast to which Dale, the listener, who made a comment on the web page responds and with which he takes issue. At this point I'm going to read through Dale's entire comment. I don't want to leave anything out. I want to make sure that I'm being fair to him and I want to try and respond to him in as friendly a way as he responds to me. The reason I'm taking this time to do this is first off because I think that this proposal about Joseph Smith contradicting himself being viewed as a good thing is an important idea. I think it's worth revisiting and I think it's worth exploring further. Here's the first thing that Dale says, "...enjoyed the idea and attempt behind understanding the process of revelatory knowledge from a Mormon perspective. However, as per my usual combative spirit, I do take exception to what I believe is the real intent of your narrative." Quote. I find nothing objectionable to what Dale says in his opening paragraph except for the final clause, where he says, I do take exception to what I believe is the real intent of your narrative. Dale seems to believe that the real intent of my narrative is to try and open the way to promote change on cultural issues within the LDS Church. In response, I have to say, no, that is not the real intent of my narrative. The real intent of my narrative is to look at the way Joseph Smith viewed Revelation being completely open to the idea of new revelation contradicting old revelation, whether that old revelation was in the Bible, in the Book of Mormon, in the Doctrine and Covenants, or in the Book of Abraham, or anywhere else for that matter. The real intent of my narrative is to suggest that we today can learn lessons from the way Joseph Smith viewed Revelation as not being hog-tied to the past just because it is something that has always been said before, even if it has been said before in Scripture, and that we should always be open to modifying our views in the face of new information and new revelation. Dale says, first, the use of contradictory or contradiction seems a little out of place for the examples provided. One thing is to outright make an ultimate claim and then diametrically oppose that claim. However, to amend the truth is not contradiction. This is an interesting claim that Dale makes that to amend a truth is not contradiction. Well, it is a contradiction when the truth as amended contradicts the previous truth. And I gave seven examples of such with references and explanations as to why they are indeed contradictions, or at least why I see them as contradictions. One of the fundamental problems I have with Dale's response is that throughout he deals in vague objections but never gets down to any specifics. In other words, he will claim that to amend a truth is not a contradiction, but Dale never gives an example to show how it is that any of my seven examples falls into that category. The next part is where Dale does give an example, but it has nothing to do with any of my seven examples. Instead, it's more of a straw man, as I see it. Dale says, example, if Joseph claimed Moroni was the deliverer of the plates, and then we find out he then states it was a salamander, then we have an absolute contradiction. Then he puts in parentheses, couldn't help using the Hoffman example. Dale uses this example because he apparently believes that the fact the salamander letter was proven a forgery means that the salamander story no longer conflicts with the dominant narrative account that it was Moroni, and only Moroni, from the get-go. This is a dangerous rabbit hole to go down for Dale, because the facts are a bit different. Mark Hoffman did not make up the story of the salamander out of whole cloth. He followed a similar pattern here as in other forgeries. What he did was base his forged documents on earlier authentic documents, such that the forged documents would have a firm historical underpinning. If he hadn't done this nobody ever would have believed that the salamander letter was authentic in the first place. It was because it had some basis in earlier documents that gave it verisimilitude. What Hoffman did in this instance was base the salamander letter off of an 1833 affidavit written by Willard Chase. Now Willard Chase was a treasure-seeking companion of Joseph Smith. He wrote an affidavit in 1833 recounting a conversation Willard Chase says he had with Joseph Smith Sr. six years earlier, in June of 1827. According to Willard Chase, there were certain requirements related to treasure seeking which Smith had to fulfill in order to be able to obtain the plates. One statement attributed by Chase to Joseph Smith Sr. is that Joseph Smith Jr., quote, saw in the box something like a toad which soon assumed the appearance of a man, and struck him on the side of his head." This is why this is a dangerous road to go down. Dale states, once again I'm quoting him, if Joseph claimed Moroni was the deliverer of the plates, and then we find out, he then states it was a salamander, then we have an absolute contradiction. Couldn't help using the Hoffman example. But what happens if we find out that Joseph claimed it was not Moroni who delivered the plates, but that it was actually a toad that transformed itself into a man. Is Dale willing to follow his own logic and admit that then we have an absolute contradiction? Going on, Dale says, In cases of canonized statements versus speculative assumption, based on what was once understood at a particular time, then it can get a little messy, of course. But which canonized statements is Dale referring to? And which speculative assumptions? Dale does not say, but one of the most thorny of these issues is the issue of the nature of God as set forth in the lectures on faith when compared with the nature of God as set forth in Doctrine and Covenants section 130. Indeed, this may be what Dale has in mind because he goes on to say, we shouldn't mix the two doctrine versus lectures, though, if we are to dissect this fairly. This is part of the problem with not being specific, Dale compares doctrine versus lectures as if the lectures on faith were not doctrine. That has come to be a common apologetic tactic in trying to get around Lecture on Faith number 5. It was not doctrine. It was only a lecture. Personal story. When I first began immersing myself in the study of Mormonism back in the 1980s, I came across a number of scholarly papers arguing back and forth on this issue. The issue was, were the lectures on faith really authored by Joseph Smith? One side would say that they were not authored by Joseph Smith, but they were authored by Sidney Rigdon, and that somehow they got into the Doctrine and Covenants in the 1835 edition without Joseph Smith's knowledge or approval. The other side would argue that it was difficult to understand how that could happen and how Joseph Smith would allow them to stand in the Doctrine and Covenants for nine years until his death without ever saying anything about it if he disagreed with anything in them or thought that their inclusion was an error. So as I say I read these scholarly papers arguing this issue back and forth but none of the papers actually said why they were having the argument in the first place the reason they were having the argument was because of Lecture on Faith number 5 and the fact that it contradicts with Section 130 in the Doctrine and Covenants on the Nature of God. But as to the authority that the Lectures on Faith were given by early members of the Church, the facts are pretty much indisputable. The Lectures on Faith were contained in the first half of the Doctrine and Covenants. That's where the book got the name of the Doctrine and Covenants. The lectures on faith were the doctrine in the Doctrine and Covenants. A little bit of history here. On September 24, 1834, a committee was appointed by the General Assembly of the Church to organize a new volume containing the most significant revelations. Guess who sat on the committee? Joseph Smith! Oliver Cowdery, Sidney Rigdon, and Frederick G. Williams. In other words, Joseph Smith was on the committee to organize this new volume called Doctrine and Covenants. They began to review and revise numerous revelations for inclusions in the new work, and the committee eventually organized the book into two parts, a Doctrine part and a Covenants part. The Doctrine part of the book consisted of a theological course now called the Lectures on Faith. The Lectures were a series of doctrinal discourses used in the School of the Prophets, which had recently been completed in Kirtland, Ohio. That's where Joseph Smith lived at the time. According to the committee, which had Joseph Smith on it, these lectures were included in the compilation quote, in consequence of their embracing the important doctrine of salvation. That's in the preface to the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. The committee, including Joseph Smith, wrote in the preface that the lectures were included because they embraced the important doctrine of salvation. That's why they were called the doctrine part of the Doctrine and Covenants. So, we are not mixing the Doctrine and the Lectures as alleged by Dale. The Lectures are the Doctrine. A little more interesting history on the Lectures on Faith. They were removed from the 1921 version of the Doctrine and Covenants without vote of the membership. This is remarkable. The Lectures on Faith had been the Doctrine in the Doctrine and Covenants since the first edition in 1835 and they had remained in the Doctrine and Covenants for almost 100 years until 1921 when they were removed from the Doctrine and Covenants without vote of the Church. The book retained the name Doctrine and Covenants even though the Doctrine had been taken out and really only the Covenants had been left. Church leaders have acknowledged that the decision to omit the lectures on faith in the 1921 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants was based not only on the fact that they are not revelations but it also had to do with some of the teachings about the Godhead in Lecture 5. There was a committee that was organized to decide whether to continue to publish the lectures on faith with the revelations. On that committee were Elder James Talmadge, Elder John Whitso, and Elder Joseph Fielding Smith. According to a 1940 interview with Joseph Fielding Smith, he stated, quote, they are not complete, i.e., the lectures on faith, are not complete as to their teachings regarding the Godhead. More complete instructions on this point of doctrine are given in section 130 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So when he says they are not complete as to their teachings, what he really means is they contradict section 130 and therefore they needed to be removed it was thought by elder james talmage chairman and other members of the committee who were responsible for their omission that to avoid confusion and contention on this vital point of belief it would be better not to have them bound in the same volume as the commandments or revelations which make up the doctrine and covenants so as we have seen one apologetic tact to the lectures on faith has been to say well joseph smith had nothing to do with them We need to distance Joseph Smith from these as much as possible to avoid the contradiction that will inevitably result when we get to section 130 of the Doctrine and Covenants. A second apologetic has been to say that the lectures on faith were never really doctrine in the first place, when in fact they were doctrinal, that's why they were included, and they were the doctrine in the Doctrine and Covenants. A third apologetic has been to say there is simply no contradiction between The Lectures on Faith and the Doctrine and Covenants. This type of argument was promoted by Elder Bruce R. McConkie. Bruce R. McConkie doesn't say Joseph Smith had nothing to do with him. Bruce R. McConkie doesn't say they weren't doctrine. Bruce R. McConkie says there's no conflict. Unfortunately, Bruce R. McConkie did not see fit to actually explain how it is. There is no conflict. He like Dale dealt in vague generalities. Here's what he said in his last book, A New Witness. the articles on faith. Page 72. And here, Elder McConkie, without using any specifics or any arguments of any kind to prove his point, simply says there's no contradiction and then summarily insults and condemns those who think that there is a contradiction while uplifting and glorifying those who do not think that there is a contradiction. Here's what he says, page 72, a new witness for the articles of faith. Quote, using the Holy Scriptures as the recorded source of the knowledge of God, knowing what the Lord has revealed to them of old in visions and by the power of the Spirit, and writing as guided by that same Spirit, Joseph Smith and the early brethren of this dispensation prepared a creedal statement on the Godhead. He's talking about the Lectures on Faith. It is without question the most excellent summary of revealed and eternal truth relative to the Godhead that is now extant in mortal language. In it is set forth the mystery of godliness, That is, it sets forth the personalities, missions, and ministries of those holy beings who comprise the supreme presidency of the universe. Now, once again, Bruce R. McConkie doesn't see fit to actually explain that the lectures on faith, which he is extolling as the best thing since sliced bread when it comes to describing the Godhead, says there's only two beings in it, and that God the Father has a body of spirit as opposed to Jesus, who has a body of flesh and bones. He doesn't mention that. All he does is say, it is so fantastic, it is so wonderful, it's the best thing that is extant in mortal language. And then he goes on for the coup de grace. To spiritually illiterate persons, that would be people who think that there's a contradiction, to spiritually illiterate persons, it may seem hard and confusing. To those whose souls are aflame with heavenly light, like Bruce R. McConkey, apparently, it is a nearly perfect summary of those things which must be believed to gain salvation. So here, Elder McConkie does a perfect ad hominem argument. He doesn't deal with any of the facts. All he says is that it's perfect, it's wonderful, there's no contradictions. And if you think that there are, you're spiritually illiterate. And if you don't think there are any contradictions, then your souls are aflame with heavenly light also notice the last part of this quote this will be important later bruce r mcconkey says that the things that are set forth in the lectures on faith relative to the godhead must be believed to gain salvation bruce r mcconkey was big on this that certain propositions had to be believed in order to gain salvation. He includes the lectures on faith in that. He includes not believing the Adam God theory. He includes a whole host of things in his famous speech, the seven deadly heresies. This is an important issue for Elder McConkie, that there's a whole list of doctrines that must be believed in order to be saved. He got that from his father-in-law, Joseph Fielding Smith, who felt the same way. And Joseph Fielding Smith got it from his father, Joseph F. Smith. That will be again important later, so keep that in mind. Going back to the lectures on faith though, you will remember that the lectures on faith were in the Doctrine and Covenants until 1921. Well, Doctrine and Covenants section 130, which has this contradicting version of the Godhead, was not added to the Doctrine and Covenants until 1876. This means that for 45 years from 1876 to 1921, both the Lectures on Faith and Doctrine in Covenants 130 existed in the same book of Scripture. They stood in tension to each other, and apparently that tension became so great that in 1921, the leaders of the Church decided to remove the Lectures on Faith in order to relieve the cognitive dissonance which was apparently being felt by at least some members of the Church, if not the leaders. The tension that existed between the lectures on faith and Doctrine and covenant section 130 for 45 years is much like how Jacob chapter 2 in the Book of Mormon stands in tension to Doctrine and covenant section 132 today. Of course what I'm referring to is that Jacob 2 condemns polygamy whereas Doctrine and Covenants section 132 not only justifies polygamy but actually commands polygamy. At this point I wanted to make a few comments about Jacob chapter 2. Jacob chapter 2 gets batted back and forth between the critics and the apologists so much that the arguments are pretty well known. First, the critics view is that Jacob 2 and D&C 132 contradict each other, therefore Joseph Smith was a false prophet. Pretty basic, pretty fundamental, pretty easy to follow. The apologists, on the other hand, have different ways to reconcile the two scriptures. One such view, which is gaining popularity now, is that, yes, the two contradict. Therefore, Joseph Smith never really gave section 132, but instead it is a later forgery put off on Joseph Smith by a conniving Brigham Young, who was the real originator of plural marriage. This view is promoted by people such as Denver Snuffer. Or, another more common apologist view is that Jacob 2 does condemn polygamy, but it gives the exception which was to raise up seed. Therefore, it can be authorized by God for that purpose. Of course, the critics' response to that is, but Joseph Smith never used plural marriage to raise up seed, because as far as we can tell, he never had any children with any of his plural wives who numbered around 33. And we know he wasn't shooting blanks because he had plenty of children with Emma. So whatever Joseph Smith was doing with these plural wives, he wasn't using it to raise up seed, therefore he must fall outside the one exception provided in Jacob chapter 2. I'd like to give a few of my thoughts on this issue, which aren't so much from the critics' view or the apologists' view, but trying to take my best shot at looking at this text in an objective manner. First question I have is, why is plural marriage on Joseph Smith's mind as early as 1829 when he's dictating the Book of Mormon? Talking about plural marriage and condemning it in the Book of Mormon is a one-off. It only appears in Jacob chapter 2. There's no hint of it anywhere else in the Book of Mormon. So whether you think that Joseph Smith authored the Book of Mormon, in which case Why is it on his mind as early as 1829, even if it's just to condemn it? Or if he's actually translating the Book of Mormon, in which case these ideas are being imprinted on his mind, and it's going to be on his mind in that way as early as 1829. What's going on here, and why is plural marriage on Joseph Smith's mind as early as 1829? Number two, why is plural marriage mentioned in the first part of the Book of Mormon, when there would be no women to have plural wives with? Think about the chronology lehi takes his family leaves jerusalem around 600 bc they go into the wilderness they build the boat they head across the water they hit the americas and now nephi passes away jacob gets the place. jacob is nephi's younger brother he is still among the second generation or the first generation depending on how you look at it of people from the old world who are in the americas making this more difficult is the fact that not only is Jacob in this first generation, but the Nephites have also split from the Lamanites at this point. So any women that might be around have now been halved by the separation of the Nephites from the Lamanites. Now Jacob's getting kind of old, so sure he's got kids, probably grandkids, maybe great grandkids if you're pushing it, but the great grandkids are going to be pretty darn young and are not going to be of marriageable age. And yet all of a sudden, the Nephites are practicing plural marriage to the point where Jacob has to condemn it as an abomination before God. My question is where do the women come from in order for them to be having plural marriage and all these additional wives? Number three, but the fact that it is mentioned at the beginning of the Book of Mormon would make absolute sense if plural marriage were practiced then because when would be a better time for the Nephites to raise up seed. It's at the very beginning of the Nephite civilization. There's only a few of them on the American continent. Their numbers have been split apart because the Lamanites have gone off on their way. The Nephites have gone on their way. They're supposed to become a civilization. When in the history of Mormonism or Mormon scripture would it make more sense to command plural marriage if the reason for commanding plural marriage was to raise up seed unto God? than at the beginning of the Book of Mormon. If the Lord will command his people to practice plural marriage, to raise up seed unto him, as Jacob says in Jacob chapter 2, why didn't the Lord command it then? And number four, finally, looking at the Book of Mormon as an actual ancient text, considering that it may actually be relating things that really happened and looking at it the way scholars look at other ancient texts to try and find out what it means, what it says, what's really going on there, It appears that the exception of raising up seed is not the Lord's idea, but instead it's a response to the justification being used by the Nephites in practicing plural marriage. That would make sense. Let me explain that a little bit more. The Nephites, if this interpretation is correct, are practicing plural marriage and seeking to justify it. We know that from the context of the passage. They're seeking to justify practicing plural marriage not only by following David and Solomon's example. But also, they're seeking to justify it by saying that they need to raise up seed unto the Lord. That makes sense. When else would it make more sense than at the inception? of the Nephite civilization. If that were their justification that they were using, not what the Lord is saying is okay to do it, or that the Lord is saying, hey, if I want my people to raise up seed, then I'll command them. But it's a response from the Lord to the justification the Nephites are seeking to use. Then the passage in Jacob seems to make perfect sense. I'm going to read it to you here, Jacob chapter 2, verse 23 and 30. But the word of God burdens me because of your grosser crimes. For behold, thus saith the Lord, this people begin to to wax in iniquity. They understand not the scriptures, for they seek to excuse themselves in committing whoredoms because of the things which were written concerning David and Solomon his son. And then if we skip to verse 30, it says, For if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people, otherwise they shall hearken unto these things. So it's possible that when the Lord is saying, if I want to raise up seed unto me, I will command my people, he's not bringing it up as a possible exception. What he's doing is slamming the Nephites, who themselves are using it as a justification. Now this does require some reading into the text. There's nothing in the text that says the Nephites are using this as a justification. But using tools of textual analysis, this seems to me to be a legitimate interpretation and one that makes a good deal of sense of the text, not only of the words used in the text, but of the context in which this passage appears, being at the inception of the Nephite civilization, as I mentioned before. In this way, giving the Book of Mormon the respect of analyzing it, as if it were an ancient text, can yield surprising and sometimes faith-promoting results. So after that long segue, let's get back to Dale's comments. Dale says, The idea that doctrine or theology in Joseph's world mirrors that of the scientific process and conclusion doesn't necessarily fit as a proper analogy. Science can absolutely evolve with contradictory conclusions. Remember butter versus margarine? Maybe a poor example, but hopefully shows the point. Once again, we've got the salamander letter as an example, We've got butter versus margarine as an example, but what Dale refuses to do is actually talk about the examples I gave and say why it is that he disagrees with those being valid or any of the other issues that he has with the podcast. Dale goes on, Joseph's evolving knowledge was never ascertained through any new scientific discovery or prevailing thought of the day. It appears it was received through a revelatory process and came through a claim of divine sources. Little here and a little there, line upon line, you get the message. The sentence in Dale's quote that jumped out to me was the following, Joseph's evolving knowledge was never ascertained through any new scientific discovery or prevailing thought of the day. Really? Now hold on thar, Bubba The problem here is that much of Joseph Smith's evolving knowledge does appear to have been ascertained through new scientific discoveries and prevailing thought of his day. I'll give just three examples. The first is the Word of Wisdom, which appears to have been influenced largely by contemporary temperance movements in Joseph Smith's day. Number two, plural marriage. This seems to have been likely influenced by other plural marriage communities, such as the Cochranite movement, which was prevalent in Joseph Smith's day and which had members who joined the LDS church. The third example is the United Order, which Joseph Smith instituted in 1831. Similar to the Word of Wisdom and plural marriage, the United Order did not come about in a vacuum. In fact, The history tells us that it was likely influenced by a group of people that lived in Kirtland, Ohio or near Kirtland, Ohio on Isaac Morley's farm who were members of Sidney Rigdon's community and ended up joining the LDS church. This group of about 50 people who were known as The Family lived on Isaac Morley's farm near Kirtland, Ohio. They had established a cooperative venture based on statements in the book of Acts. Those would be the statements that the believers in Christ had all things in common. Members of the Morley family were originally followers of Sidney Rigdon, who later converted to Mormonism. Many of these communalists also joined the new church, and several, including Isaac Morley, served in leadership positions. Levi Hancock records an early event wherein a family member stole his pocket watch and sold it, claiming it was all in the family. Joseph Smith was troubled because of the number of members joining the church in poverty in Kirtland, Ohio. Revenue was needed for the church to publish books and tracts. At this time, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon were both in economic distress. Joseph Smith and his wife Emma lived on the Morley Farm for a period of time. Then on February 4, 1831, Joseph Smith received a revelation calling Edward Partridge to be the first bishop of the church. Five days later, on February 9, 1831, Smith described a second revelation detailing the law of consecration. So, unfortunately, history contradicts Dale's assertion that Joseph's evolving knowledge was never ascertained through any new scientific discovery or prevailing thought of the day. Going on with Dale's comment, I can't help to notice the real agenda behind the idea of accepting contradiction, which is kind of a setup for the audience to accept the current sexual and cultural shifts that is so desired by some. You get that at the end. If we can buy into a contradiction-acceptive narrative, then the rigid holdouts in the Church of Rut, which he puts in quotation marks. He apparently means to be like when you're in a rut and you can't get out. If we can buy into a contradiction acceptive narrative, then the rigid holdouts in the Church of Rut can be dismissed without further cause. What will it be? Joseph's church or today's church? The real contradiction lays in the idea that today's church is the problem, since it just can't get out of their rut. Really? Denver Snuffer and those folks don't believe that. The FLDS surely don't believe in the rut theory. On the other hand, we then have those that say they are of Joseph Smith, but really, they reject the old and the modern. I get it. You want change, and let culture and science be your master, and forget all that old religion and these stubborn old men. At least be somewhat transparent from the beginning on what the real purpose of your intent is. End quote. Again, Dale wants to insinuate that my real intent is to get the LDS Church to accept cultural change, to let culture and science be your master, but I have clearly stated in the podcast that I am not telling church leaders that they should change on these issues, only that they should not feel that they are hogtied to past doctrinal statements on the issue any more than Joseph Smith felt he was hogtied to past doctrinal statements on any issue. What I stated in the last podcast was that if current leadership really wants to follow the example of Joseph Smith, they will be willing to completely overturn previous doctrinal statements on any issue when confronted with new information and inspiration. I hope that makes my position clear. Dale says, I must acknowledge that you definitely do your homework and do a great job of utilizing Selective Facts and Methodology to lead the listeners to a place that makes your case appear faithful on the surface. However, I personally see it differently and hope others will make room too to see what is apparently being done here, or maybe they do already without my comments. I appreciate the compliment from Dale that I definitely do my homework, but right on the heels of that compliment is the aspersion that I utilize selective facts and methodology to lead the listeners to a place that makes my case appear faithful on the surface. Once again, No specifics, no facts, no real argument, just a dismissal with a wave of the hand. It is difficult, if not impossible, to respond to these kind of allegations, but maybe that is the point. Dale concludes his comment by saying, in conclusion, I'm sorry to be so critical. However, it would be a real drag if there wasn't some comments of critique. Nevertheless, isn't dialogue and debate the process of determination? God bless. My response is that it is fine to be critical, Dale. I have no problem whatsoever with that. The problem is that you use no facts to support your criticism. And the one fact you use, Hoffman's salamander letter, kind of backfired on you. I agree wholeheartedly that dialogue and debate is the process of determination of the truth. But where, in the modern LDS church, do we find dialogue proposed as a proper way to determine the truth. Where in the modern LDS Church do we find debate proposed as a proper way to determine the truth? Instead, in the LDS Church, we seem to find the requirement that the members adhere and believe doctrinal statements by the current leaders of the Church, simply because the current leaders of the Church say it. In the LDS Church, truth is determined not so much by what is said, but by who says it. It is the LDS Church that has statements on the record that when the leaders speak the thinking has been done that when the leaders speak the debate is over and that the members of the church should not criticize the leaders even if the criticism is true. That doesn't sound like dialogue and it doesn't sound like debate. In contrast to these statements by modern leaders of the church stands what Joseph Smith said during his ministry. It involves a story about a member of the church named Pelatiah Brown whose name is probably remembered only for his role in this incident. Pelatiah Brown was a member of the church who was teaching from the book of Revelation and he was teaching an interpretation of what the beasts in the book of Revelation mean. It was an interpretation with which the leaders in his area disagreed. They thought he was teaching false doctrine. Joseph Smith was not around when the leaders of the church in Peletiah Brown's area hauled him up before a disciplinary court because he was teaching false doctrine. When Joseph Smith found out about it, here is what he said, I did not like the old man being called up for erring in doctrine. It looks too much like the Methodists and not like the Latter-day Saints. Methodists have creeds which a man must believe or be asked out of their church. I want the liberty of thinking and believing as I please. It feels so good not to be trammeled. It does not prove that a man is not a good man because he errs in doctrine." Let me tell you a story about this quote. I was talking with my bishop a number of years ago about some subject that had to do with this issue, and I quoted him this statement from Joseph Smith. As much as I could recall from memory at the time, I told him to look it up in Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith that he would find it there in the story of Pelatiah Brown. Later on in church, he came to me with his copy of the Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. He said he'd looked it up, he tried to find it, he couldn't find what it was that I was citing to. I asked him to give me his copy of the book, I looked through it, I looked in the back under the index, I looked up Pelatiah Brown, I went to the pages where his story is discussed, and I couldn't find it either. I went back and forth through it. I was sure it was there, but apparently I was mistaken because it had all the stuff about the teachings of the beasts of Revelation and how Joseph Smith disagreed with it, and how Joseph Smith gave an alternate interpretation, and on and on, but I could not find this quote that I thought was there in the story. I went home, I looked up some other sources that contained statements by Joseph Smith, and suddenly I found out why it was I couldn't find it in the teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. The reason why is because the editor of Teachings of the Prophet, Joseph Smith, cut it out. I went back and looked at the page where it should have been, and instead of that quote, there was a line of asterisks showing where this quote had been omitted. Who was the editor of Teachings of the Prophet, Joseph Smith? That man was Joseph Fielding Smith. He was an apostle at the time and the church historian back in the 1930s, when he edited teachings of the prophet joseph smith which leaves us with the question as to why would joseph fielding smith have found this particular paragraph so objectionable that it had to be edited out even though he left in yards of stuff about so esoteric and nearly meaningless a doctrine as the interpretation of the beasts in the book of Revelation. Well, Joseph Fielding Smith was an apostle who believed that certain beliefs had to be adhered to in order to be saved. He was perhaps one of the most doctrinaire leaders in church history. He was equaled, if not surpassed, in being doctrinaire by his son-in-law bruce R. mcconkey and bruce R. mcconkey was the apostle who in nineteen fifty four edited joseph fielding smith's teachings into three volumes which were called the doctrines of salvation do you remember that quote from Bruce McConkie that I mentioned before that I wanted you to remember? Let's go back to that now because here's where it applies. What he said was, speaking of the lectures on faith about the Godhead, to spiritually illiterate persons it may seem hard and confusing. To those whose souls are aflame with heavenly light, it is a nearly perfect summary of those things which must be believed to gain salvation. So once again the idea that there are certain propositional beliefs that must be believed in order to to gain salvation. Bruce McConkie didn't make that up. He got it from Joseph Fielding Smith, who also believed that there were certain propositional truths that had to be believed in order to gain salvation. Which leads us to a few questions regarding why it was that Joseph Fielding Smith cut out this paragraph from his recounting of the story of Pelatiah Brown in the teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Did Joseph Fielding Smith not want members to read that Joseph Smith said I want the liberty of thinking and believing as I please. Or was it the part about, it feels so good not to be trammeled? Or maybe it was, it does not prove that a man is not a good man because he errs in doctrine. It should be remembered, At the same time Joseph Fielding Smith was cutting this piece out of the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith in the 1930s, Joseph Fielding Smith was also cutting out the 1832 account of the First Vision, which mentions Joseph Smith seeing only Jesus. And Joseph Fielding Smith then hid it in his safe for three decades until its existence was finally leaked to the public. And Joseph Fielding Smith had to put it back in the letter book from which he had cut it out. I go into detail on that entire story back in the previous episode called Hiding Church History. It is this course of conduct, exemplified by Joseph Fielding Smith, that has served as the template for LDS church leaders ever since. Hide, obfuscate, and temporize, anything to make sure there are no contradictions that have to be explained. What I am suggesting here is that it is the example of Joseph Smith, not Joseph Fielding Smith, that church leaders should follow. Not to hide the contradictions, but to glory in them. Not to be afraid of contradictions, but be willing to contradict more doctrines when confronted with conflicting information and inspiration. As Joseph Smith said elsewhere, by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.